All right. What's left unsaid? My life at the uh, center of power, politics and crisis by Melissa DeRossi. Remember, well now, communications director, chief of staff back in the days of Andrew Cuomo, secretary to him, first woman to serve in the role, by the way. And we welcome Melissa to the airwaves right here on Online News Radio. First time with the uh, book and everything else. It is good to have you here. Melissa, we thank you for thank coming you on. Thank you for having me, Jay. Good having good you. Um, what, what prompted you? What was the impetus, Melissa, to write this? You know, Jay, I decided 24 hours after we were out of office that I was going to write this book because I said to myself that I was not going to allow the first draft of history to stand because so much of what was reported in 2020 and 2021 was just not reflective of reality. And I thought it was important for the public and specifically the people of New York to be able to hear directly from primary source, somebody who was in the room who lived it, exactly went on during both COVID and then during 2021, during the undoing of the administration. So that was the motivation for the book. You know, it's almost like a tale of two cities, because in doing the job that I do on a daily basis, uh, did our did our shows during the pandemic, um, but also I was an avid watcher back in the days of the governor, former governor. Uh, in the 110, give or take, these briefings, you know, it became kind of a morning regimen, not only for myself, but for others. You there at the ta- at, on the panel as well, along with other uh, officials there. Um, what was that like, going in front of the cameras daily? Um, and the governor, really, with a dissertation on the events of all that had happened prior, what would be to come? Uh, what, what was that like for you sitting there? It, you know, it was surreal because on the one hand, Jay, you know, we were holding those red room briefings, as you know, from covering the, the administration for the 10 preceding years. And all of a sudden COVID happens and we were all just doing the same job we had done for so many years in the same room with the same people. But because of the pandemic, because New York was all of a sudden the global epicenter, and because, frankly, the federal abdication of responsibility from Trump, where Andrew Cuomo became the de facto, de facto commander-in-chief, all of a sudden, those Red Room press conferences we were giving became, you know, international must-see TV. And so, and I write about this in, a, in the book a little bit, this sort of surreal experience of just going to work and doing your job during the middle of this once-in-a-century pandemic And all of a sudden going from, you know, unknown staff person to becoming a household name and, you know, Albany (laughs) all of a sudden becoming the most important place on the globe. If I hadn't lived it, I wouldn't believe that it happened. No question about it. I mean, it was uh, conversations were catapulting Andrew Cuomo to the presidency at the convention and everything else. You know, it would be a shoo in if that was his wish. And then... uh, and then, you know, I, I've never seen it before in 30 years in the business where you have a descent uh, of an individual so high in the mountain and, and just kind of uh, flailing. Um, that had to be an eye-opener for you, as close as you were to him in your role. Give me a sense of that, because everything was going accordingly, doing his job, leader extraordinaire and everything else, leading the charge, getting New York out of this. And then all of a sudden, the tables turn. Give me a sense of that. Well, 
you know, Jay, it was a little bit like Icarus, right? It was Icarus who flew, who flew too close to the sun. And he was, he had gained this global prominence. As you said, he was being talked about to replace Joe Biden on the ticket to become president in 2020. Donald Trump became obsessed with this idea that Andrew Cuomo could be running against him. And and then all of a sudden, boom, 2021 comes and everything comes crashing down. And, it, you know, again, I, I hate to go back to the, the same word, but it was surreal. And right. the way that it happened, Jay, I mean, the, the you know, the allegations coming out of, of sexual harassment and sort of how it all metastasized and the press, you know, seizing on any, you know, sort anything big or small, you know, I write about this in the book that sort of the turning point moment for me where I was like, what is going on was when the New York Times put on its front page this woman at a wedding. The governor had officiated a wedding and he was going around the room taking photographs with all the wedding guests. And he had put his hands on this woman's face while he was posing for a photo. And they put it on the front page because this woman said she had been offended. And this was, you know, it was it was politics meets media hysteria meets the Me Too movement in sort of this perfect storm that took down Andrew Cuomo. And, you know, Talking to with Melissa DeRosa. Where... Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry. Melissa, you want to finish that thought? Go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, and for the, you know, to go from where we were in 2020, you know, where it was he had been this international hailed hero for his steady leadership, and then to, you know, be all of a sudden taken down, you know, for putting his hands on a woman's face and giving someone a you know, kiss on the cheek and, and sort of, you know, the politics at play and all of this. It, it, again, if I hadn't lived it, I wouldn't believe it. Talking with Melissa DeRosa with a book, What's Left Unsaid. Uh, my life at the center of power, politics and crisis. Let's kind of take off from there because um, there was a lot going on as far as everything was concerned. Uh, with uh, with allegations, you know, besides the pandemic, we'll get into the whole nursing home situation as well. But, you know, a scandal beyond regarding sexual harassment, taking down a governor, one of the more popular ones in the country. Um, but when you have one after the other, after the other, after the other, as far as, you know what, something wasn't right here, even that of an individual uh, who was a protector in that elevator, a state trooper. I mean, that is an eye-opener. Was that one for you? As close as you were to the governor, uh, you confided. You certainly were his right hand in so many aspects of governing, Melissa. When you hear, and maybe, as you mentioned, when you witness of something of this nature, maybe it's blown overboard and whatnot. What are you thinking? What was your advisement to Andrew Cuomo throughout? No, Jay, it was a total farce. It was a total farce. And, you know, it was politics used to take out a political adversary. And, you know, the, the, what Tish James did with that report and what sort of happened during the spring when those allegations were unfurling was that it stopped becoming about what the allegation was and everything was just given a number. And where people got lost was no one saw past the headline. So people saw the number 11. People heard, oh, another allegation. But, you know, what I sort of go through in my book very meticulously through facts and through transcripts and text messages is I break down what those 11 were. And, you know, what I hear more and more from New Yorkers today is, wait, the governor resigned for that? 
I mean, even the state trooper, it's like everyone, you know, was very upset about this allegation. Oh, a state trooper. And then when you actually stop and say, wait, what was the allegation? That he, you know, allegedly touched her back in an elevator and said, hey, you, that he, you know, gave her a kiss on the cheek after saying, may I give you a kiss on the cheek? And then you have in today's news, Jay, a state senator is being accused of rape. And you don't see the Democratic state Senate leader saying he needs to resign. They say, we're troubled by this and we're going to, you know, watch this closely. Now, kiss on the cheek versus rape. This is where, I, and I talk about this in the book, sort of politicizing the Me Too movement and using it and weaponizing it for politics. And that's what happened during the spring of 2021. And I hope that New Yorkers read the book and really understand what happened there, because a government was overturned and we lost a competent executive, basically as a result of media hysteria meeting politics. And I think weaponizing a really impor- important cultural movement in Me Too. Talking to Melissa DeRosso. Well, if that's the case, you know the old saying, when there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, Why so many coming forward regarding him in in a negative way, though, Melissa? Well, and again, Jay, and that's the thing, right? Like, people say, you know, are you saying 11 women are lying? Absolutely not. Not saying 11 women are lying. Nine of the 11 allegations are things that happened in front of other people. Uh, Were things at public events. Again, a kiss on the cheek, a hand on the waist. And yes, I do think that the Me Too movement, which was a necessary corrective, allows women the opportunity to set their own boundaries and say they're, you know, uncomfortable with something. But at the same time where we lost our footing in the hysteria of that moment was some things, you know, you should apologize. You, you know, you offended me. I'm sorry. Some things require training. Other things you should be fired after due process, by the way, and others you should go to jail But what we lost in the spring of 2021, and you just said it, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Yes, Andrew Cuomo kissed women on the cheek. He did it with women. He did it with men. He did it with old. He did it with young. He's a politician. It's the same stuff you see Kathy Hochul doing at events today. So why was it in the spring of 2021 that that forced Andrew Cuomo from office? And the answer is because it was hysteria of a cultural movement combined with politics, where there are many people on the far left and the far right who wanted to force him out of office. And so, you know, again, I hope people read the book, and I hope they really come to understand what happened, because it can't happen again. But here's the thing. If he believed in his innocence, as well as you, and you were top advisor there, uh, and I remember like it was yesterday when he came before the cameras at lunchtime on that August day and basically stated he was stepping away. Now, my belief was it was imminent as far as impeachment. There was no question. Uh, I think they would have gotten rid of him, Melissa. I mean, that that had to be at the forefront. Uh, He did not want to go in disgrace. He basically, on his own accord, said, you know what, I'm stepping away for the the betterment of, of the state. But if he really, truly believed that nothing went awry here, as do you. Uh, why, why not fight it? Why not go every step of the way to fight it? Well, it's what you said, Jay. I mean, the fix was in. The New York State Constitution doesn't have any standard for impeachment. There is no high crimes and misdemeanors like there is at the federal level, and there's no due process guaranteed in the law. And the Assembly had already announced that they were going to impeach, that they had the numbers, and the state Senate already announced that they were going to, you know, move to remove him. And so 
there was going to be no due process whatsoever. And it would have, in the meantime, there was a very human toll that was going on. You know, his brother was being fired at in the press. I, like my mental health had deteriorated to a point where I wasn't sure I wanted to make it to the next day. Our former staff people were losing their jobs. You know, they were, the press was playing, you know, like as if it was bullseye, target practice, going after not just the governor, but everyone around him. His children were seeing him being labeled a sex pest on the front page of the New York Post every day. You know, even though the allegations were kiss on the cheek, hand on the waist. And so, you know, for a photograph. And so people forget that there was a very human element playing out in the background, all of this against the politics of the legislature, saying that they were going to move to impeach him. But again, Jay, this morning's news, state senator accused of rape. Where's the outrage from the media and from Andrea Stewart-Cousins and from the state Senate? It doesn't exist. Because this isn't about the allegation. This was about politics. And unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of things we could do in that administration, and one of them was count votes. And we knew that there was going to be no due process. And so it was time. It's on with Melissa DeRosa. Ladies and gentlemen, what's left unsaid, my life at the center of power, politics, uh, and, uh, and crisis. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit to the nursing home situation, which to yeah. me which to me uh, was the most egregious point of, of it all, because I remember the March 25th edict as far as getting these COVID patients, seniors, from the hospitals back to the nursing homes. For the life of me, Melissa, I couldn't understand that. And then uh, pretty much was amplified as far as a cover-up that was concerned, conversations that were heard that basically stating the wrath of the Trump administration, the Cuomo team did not want any part of. Take me back to that decision, going back regarding our senior citizens into those homes, COVID-related, deaths that occurred, 15,000, maybe not as uh, escalated, by the administration based on what the White House uh, would do. But give me a sense of the thinking. There had to be some sort of a plan in a room to kind of reach that decision. Give me that first off. So there, you know, the March 25th admissions policy, which is what it was. It's another thing that's been misstated a million times in the press. It was not an executive order. It did not come from the governor. It came from the health department was something that was done at the end of March when, and it wasn't just New York, there were 11 other states that had almost nearly identical policies that was put in place when there was a fear that the hospital system was going to collapse. And the admissions policy said that you, sh- that you could not discriminate against someone solely on their basis of COVID. So it said, essentially, if you had had COVID previously or if you were in a place that had other people with COVID, but that patient, that individual patient, was me- was medically stable, which doctors will tell you means essentially, if you're that old, that you are no longer believed to have COVID. That you can't deny them admission from a nursing home solely on that basis. It was actually modeled after what was put in place in the 80s during the AIDS epidemic, where it said that hospitals couldn't deny or homes couldn't deny patients solely on the basis if they had AIDS. So it was an anti-discriminatory policy that was put in place. And so that was put in place in New York. It stayed in existence for about six weeks. 
And the again, this was done by the health department in consultation with other medical experts. And the thing about that admissions policy that was is to this day so regretful is that it was weaponized and politicized to the, in this in this way that took people's real pain and made it hyper political. The reality, Jay, which no one wants to talk about because it's not sexy and it's not sensationalized is that we now know that COVID was in New York in early January, early mid-January, which means COVID was entering nursing homes, hospitals, subways, schools, as early as early January and spreading like wildfire. So it was not that these nursing homes, and 98% of nursing homes already had COVID in them before any patient was released into the nursing home, known to have COVID in them. That was based on the testing at the time, to say nothing for the fact that there was clearly COVID people with COVID in those nursing homes in January and February before we knew it was here. So it was one of those things that was so highly politicized and weaponized. And it was something that Trump used to go after Andrew Cuomo and three other Democratic governors while ignoring eight other states that had nearly identical admissions practices that were Republican states that to this day no one reads about and no one talks about. And this entire conversation ignores that any study that has been done shows that COVID got into nursing homes in New York, Florida, California, Michigan, England, Italy, the same way, which is through staff, not because of an admissions policy that was in place for six weeks. And when people say 15,000 people died because of an order that was in place for six weeks, it ignores reality and it's intellectually dishonest. But why allow them to go back into these venues knowing the most vulnerable throughout all this was that of senior citizens and, of course, those who are immunocompromised? Why even in a common sense way have them go back to those venues? Well, again, you have to remember the admissions policy, and this is something that never gets repeated in the press. This is for people who were medically stable, which doctors will tell you means for people in that age group no longer were COVID positive. So the belief is they're not COVID positive and nursing homes did not have to accept the patients if they could not properly care for them, which meant during COVID a whole litany of things. You had to be able to isolate. You had to have staff that had, you know, had the proper PPE. You should have different wings of the hospital. But these details got lost in the conversation. And again, it took very real pain and politicized it and weaponized it. And Jay, 11 other states had nearly identical policies. Why is it that you never hear about any of them? Why was it just about New York? Why weren't we talking about places like Kentucky and Arizona that were red states that had similar policies? Because this became no, listen, politics. Uh, you know, uh, listen, I, I understand it, but, but why the numbers Wait, what what was listen? If, if fifteen thousand were actually lost, why not at least go in the fact of not reducing those numbers for the purposes of the White House at that particular time? Was there a fear that the Trump administration would come down hard as far as everything going on between Trump and Andrew Cuomo? What what was the what was the deal there? Well, no, and this is another thing, and I go through this extensively in the book. So at, in the beginning of March of 2020, we start reporting deaths, and we did it a very simple way that we believed was common sense and efficient back then. 
which was people who die in nursing homes are nursing home deaths. People who die in hospitals are hospital deaths. And we did that from the beginning for reliability purposes. They would report into us. We would report out to the public. Then, at the like middle of April, end of April, the press starts asking a different question, which was, what about people who died in hospitals but had come from nursing homes? So we start issuing these retrospective surveys throughout the, throughout the spring of 2020. We did up to a dozen of them, Jay, asking, please turn into us what you believe were your probable deaths, people in hospitals, people who left and went home. And we get back all of these results that are wildly inaccurate. People putting deaths back to December of 2019, people listing every death, every person who left as a COVID death people giving dates of death in the future that hadn't occurred yet. So we spent August of 2020 doing an audit to try to clean up these numbers and figure out what was what. And then right at the end of August, as this is sort of ongoing, we get hit with a subpoena from DOJ from a Trump-ordered investigation into New York and three other Democratic states, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, on the heels of Andrew Cuomo's convention speech, because he criticized the president, and the president was furious. So he turned around and ordered an investigation, used the Department of Justice to go after Andrew Cuomo in New York on nursing homes. Again, 11 states, similar policies, goes after him after he criticized him in a convention speech. And at that moment, we gave all of the proper information to the Department of Justice, What we actually did was say to the legislature, we're going to hold off on getting back to you because we have to give deference to what is now a federal investigation. So we turned everything over to the Department of Justice. Fast forward, July 2021, DOJ sends New York a letter saying, we reviewed the numbers. Not only are they correct, but there's nothing in them that that suggests any wrongdoing to the point that it requires an investigation. But this is, again, Jay, the front page headline says one thing, screams one thing for six months, and then you get exonerated and it falls on page 30, and no one ever knows the difference between the two, and a narrative is hardened and it's impossible to undo. So that was the situation. Now, we'll, numbers, which is no, no. another thing that has been completely overblown and distorted. I'll say this, though, and as I mentioned to you watching this on a daily basis, I did not like the way the health commissioner, Howard Zucker, conducted himself. Um, I thought he was very wishy-washy in his approach, did not answer the questions as far as the press thereafter. I called him a deer in the headlights, to be honest with you, Melissa. I I did not like the way Zucker kind of handled things. There was some very important information that needed to be conveyed clearing up some stuff here. Did you get, listen, I'm, I'll ask you on it. Did you get that same feeling as well? Because I'm watching this on a daily basis and Zucker did not know what he was doing. No, I mean, listen, Jay, and this is a hard thing, right? Not it's when you're a health commissioner, you don't necessarily expect to all of a sudden be on national television every day. You know, I think some people are better suited to be sitting up on that day and are used to going back and forth with the press and are, you know, can speak with a little bit more confidence. I mean, I, people used to comment on me during those press conferences that I had a command of the facts and, you know, could joust back and forth with the reporters. But I also came from a communications background, and so I was used to that. And so 
you know, I think for certain people, especially, you know, Dr. Zucker is a doctor, he was a, he was a bureaucrat, he was a health commissioner, I think giving people a little bit of grace that, you know, he didn't exactly sign on to be on national television 111 days, and that, that's not a role that naturally falls to certain people. But he, he is a great medical professional, and he was another person who I think was unfairly sort of batted around in the media. A couple of more for Melissa DeRosa. Appreciate a couple of minutes here. The $5 million the governor received for the book, did you think it was somewhat disingenuous not knowing the final outcome of things with this crisis? And a lot of people looked at it and said, hey, what's the deal here? He's reaping benefits. We've got massive problems and deaths and everything else. I mean, what, what is going on here? Did you recommend that he not go for that deal till all said and done, keep it on the on the back burner somewhat there? What was your thought process? You know, the book was something that, I mean, clearly in hindsight being 2020 <laughs> was not a great idea. And at the time, you know, I think that he thought, I'm going to very quickly write this book and so people can learn the lessons of the first wave to apply to the second wave. And there was a lot about our back and forth with the White House that I think he wanted the public to be aware of before the election. And, of course, in sort of looking back in hindsight, that that was something that should have been kept until everything was over. And, you know, that it could have been, you know, I think that people would have been able to use the totality of the lessons smarter, you know, once that, once the dust had fully settled. And so... Of course, that's one of those things that you look back on, and it just it should he should have waited. Do you think, and a final one here, do you think uh, Andrew Cuomo will be relevant one day again in the political landscape? I think he's relevant now, Jay. I mean, you know, he goes out and talks about migrants, and it's, his comments are splashed all over the press, you know. There's very few people who have the level of governmental experience as he does. You know, he ran the, you know, ran his father's campaign when he was 20. He was HUD secretary in his early 30s. He was attorney general. He was governor for 11 years. And so I think he's very relevant today. I think the question of does he or should he seek electoral office again is a different question. Well, I mean, you could say he's he's relevant, but he's not relevant as far as the actual decision making and everything else. But uh, so are you we'll, asking we'll follow me, up on, on your again? on your question to my question. Do you see him to yeah. to get into an office of relevant proportions, where where he can make decisions and whatnot, a la what a governor does? Do you see him in a role of that nature, or some or something else? I think if he wants to, Jay, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you and your daily travels, but more and more I hear from people who, number one, I think look back with a more sober assessment and say, I can't believe we lost the governor for that. Like, why, was, why did he reside? Why was he chased out of office? But I think more than that even, look, I think there's a real lack of leadership on every level right now, local, state, federal. And I think a lot of people feel like there's nobody in charge. And I think that there is a, you know, we've got issues with anti-Semitism. We have issues with crime. We have issues with the migrant crisis. People feel affordability is out of control. And I don't think anyone really feels like anyone is in charge. And then at the same time, you know, while Andrew Cuomo was governor, 
We built the third track on Long Island. We built Eastside Access. We did Moynihan. We did LaGuardia. We did JFK. You know, the property tax cap. And so there was just a lot that was happening during our administration. And I really do feel like even those who disagreed with him felt like there was someone at the helm. And so I think that should he want to re-enter public life, I think absolutely there would be an appetite for it electorally. One last one. I'm keeping you extra, and I appreciate it. Do you think he would have signed, okay. signed that clean slate bill? <laughs> sorry? I'm sorry? I, I was going to say, I, I know I'm keeping you bonus time here, and I appreciate it. Do you think he would have signed the clean slate bill that Kathy Hogel did the other day? Oh, I don't know. I would, you know, I don't know because I haven't studied it closely enough. I apologize. I can't weigh in on that okay. one. And and one last one, and I mean one last one here. Do you think <laughs> he would have handled the migrant crisis as far as what we are experiencing right now on a daily basis? Would he have gone about it any differently? Because I got to tell you, uh, a lot of people, yours truly here doesn't think Kathy Ogle is handling it the right way, nor does the mayor, to be fair, Eric Adams. Uh, I don't think they're doing a good job in that regard. Do you think uh, former Governor Cuomo would handle it differently? Yes. Oh, my God, Jay, yes. And this is one of the things, you know, and I've had extensive conversations with him about this, and it kills me as someone who is at the highest level of government to watch this get so epically screwed up. I mean, this has, first of all, been going on for over a year. Remember, you know, August of 2022 was when was when Abbott and DeSantis first started sending migrants to New York, Martha's Vineyard, Boston, Washington, D.C. And there was no forget about the lack of good response. There was no response from Kathy Hochul. None. She sat on her hands for almost a year. And and immigration migration is first and foremost a federal responsibility I think that Andrew Cuomo would have been honest from the start in saying that Joe Biden created this mess and it was his mess to fix. It should not be on the dime of New York taxpayers, not even close. And meanwhile, you're watching, you know, the homeless services collapse in New York City. You're seeing, you know, a deficit of $14 billion in New York City, half of which is directly attributed to this. And there's no way. There's no way. We would have demanded the federal government pick up every last red cent of this. We would have demanded that there be equitable distribution of the migrants so it wasn't just New York's and New York's crisis alone to bear. We would have worked with county executives around the state where there's underemployment issues. We would have expedited work permits so that they could be part of the, the solution instead of being part of the problem. The ways in which we would have handled this differently, I mean, I could stay on your show for an hour and talk about it, but it was so badly botched, and as a result, the people of New York are having to pay for it. And it's not fair, and it's not good politics, but worse, it's not good government. Can't figure it out. Can't figure it out. I think a lot of people would give Andrew Cuomo the benefit of the doubt. Well, all that's going on, Melissa, as far as, you know what, if he was in place this never would occur. A lot of people are not happy, not happy with the performance of Kathy Hogan. I'm just wondering uh, if he has ever had her ear as far as so many issues right now. Uh, and well, so many people live in the state of frustration, not feeling safe and everything else, especially with this crisis. Go ahead. No, and you know, Jay, I think that Kathy Hochul, you know, tried to tie herself into knots to say that she wasn't Andrew Cuomo. And it's like, look, lady, no one needs to be convinced of that. 
And perhaps you should look at the things that he did very well and model yourself after that or pick up the phone and ask for advice or turn to some of the people, you know, rather than firing everyone around you who, you know, actually knew what they're doing governmentally because you distance yourself from, from him. But as a result, I mean, look, the budget was late. The migrant crisis is a debacle. I don't think that anyone feels like when a storm comes that there's real leadership, somebody who's, you know, manning the ship. I don't see any infrastructure being built. It's just across the board. And I think it's really unfortunate because I think that New York had come a really long way, you know, over that period of time. And it just feels like we're going backwards. Yep. Disaster. No question about it. Aspirations for yourself. I know. Listen, it's documented. Your personal life has taken a bit of a downward turn, marriage and everything else. What do you hope to aspire to? You're young enough. You're not even 40 yet, I don't think. You wrote this book and everything else. Uh, You had a prominent role in the state. Um, where, Where does Melissa DeRosa feel like she'll be in five years? You know, I don't know yet, Jay, but as you know, as you as you noted, I was secretary of the governor at age 34, first female yep. to serve in that role. And, uh, you know, I've been on the merry-go-round. I, and it, even with, you know, what it did to my marriage, my mental health, being batted around like a pinata in the press. I mean, you heard me when you asked the question about gover- about migrants. I love government. I love public service. And at the end of the day, I feel like I have more left to give. And so I'm not sure what that looks like, but I don't think that the rest of my life will, you know, be me sitting on a beach somewhere drinking a pina colada. I I have more left to do. And at some point, I think I plan on climbing back into the ring myself. And we will be eagerly watching. Uh, What's left unsaid, ladies and gentlemen? Melissa DeRosa, my life at the uh, Center of Power, Power, Politics and uh, Crisis. Melissa, we kept you over time. We appreciate that. And uh, listen, I look forward to having you back on the show for more conversations. Is that that okay? Thanks, Jay. I'd love to come back anytime.